0: This is Talkback, 721-1290 or
1: 1-800-568-5309.
2: This is News Talk KGVO,
3: AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station.
4: Good morning, everyone. Nick Christensen here filling in for Peter Christian on Talkback on this Friday. Talkback is brought to you by Phillips Janitorial. Bringing tired and dirty carpets back to life. No job is too big or small. Call 406-260-6617. Also by Y West Storage. Call for pricing and availability at 406-510-0590. And by Gomer's U.S. Diesel Parts. Uh, Gomer's U.S. Diesel Parts and Service in Missoula at Palmer and West Broadway. And by Harrington Surgical Supply. Their mission remains the same to restore confidence and comfort into your daily life.
5: The views and opinions expressed on
4: TalkBack are not
5: those of the staff, management, or advertisers.
4: All right, as we do every Friday, we are going to get our crime report from our Missoula County attorney, Kirsten Paps. Kirsten, good morning. How are you doing?
3: I'm well, thank you, Nick. Good morning.
4: Good morning.
3: My office had a pretty busy week this week. We charged 18 new criminal complaints, um, almost twice of what we charged last week. Of those two fall into the violent crime category, or crimes against persons. One was a partner family member assault that also involved drug possession at the Poverello Center. There was another person charged with threats against a public official. As you know, we take those quite seriously. Uh, in the endangerment category, there were four DUIs, three of which were felonies, fourth, fifth, or subsequent offenses. Property crimes, we had three theft cases. One involved an ankle monitor and two involved vehicles. And then there was a burglary case we charged that involved repeated thefts from local businesses. Um... They would have been normally shoplifting, but there because there were so many of them and it was um, chronic, we charged the felony burglary. Um, in the drug category, we had five new cases, two methamphetamine, two fentanyl, and the other we charged tampering with evidence. In that case, the allegation is, well, I'm just going to call it a creative attempt to pass a urine test. In the administrative crimes category, we had three people charged with fugitive from justice. And then finally, we're um, handling a coroner's inquest today. It was an inquest involving the death of Vance Ledoux, who was fatally wounded at the smoke jumper center back in 2022. That investigation was conducted by the Department of Criminal Investigations DCI out of Helena and um, hopefully we'll have an answer on that shortly.
4: Awesome. And now, Kirsten, this is the first time our audience is hearing from you since you announced your uh, plans to retire here sometime next month. Uh, We just obviously want to thank you for all the crime reports that you've been providing over the years. And uh, obviously, I know our audience is going to miss you and we we obviously want to wish you luck. I know we want to try to get you on talk back, uh, have you as a guest one more time. Um, before it's official and kind of review uh, review your time as the county attorney and kind of what you're looking forward to doing moving forward. Well, oh,
3: thank you. That would be my honor. Let's plan on
4: it. All right. Sounds great, Kirsten. You have a good weekend. Have
3: a safe weekend. Okay,
4: bye. Bye. All right. Uh, we will come back here. Uh, let, yeah, let's take our break now, and then when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Forestry Specialist Peter Kolb, as well as retired Forester Scott Keen. Uh, we want to get Marilyn's call right away. She's been on hold for quite a while and then Max right before her. Uh, if you want to get in the queue, give us a call. Phone number is 721 1290. We'll be back right after this. You want the best. A return to mostly sunny
1: skies today, but it will remain chilly with afternoon highs only reaching the upper 20s and lows Saturday morning in the single digits or even below zero. Clouds will return Saturday night, raising the overnight temperatures back into the upper teens. Sunday will be cloudy with some light mixed rain or snow showers. By Monday, afternoon temperatures will top 40 under partly sunny skies. And much of next week, temperatures should be at or above normal. On the Town Square Weather Center, I'm Dennis Bray.
4: All right, we are back on Talkback. Nick Christensen here filling in for Peter Christian. We're speaking with forestry specialist Peter Kolb and retired forester Scott Keene this morning. And without wasting any more time, let's get Marilyn's call. Uh Marilyn, you are on. What's your question or comment for our guests?
6: Okay, good morning. So thanks for mentioning the um advantage to clear cut because that was – loggers tried to fight for that and tell the truth about it a long time ago. And so maybe you're going to talk more about it in this next hour, but I am old and I remember the history of the tree huggers and all the litigation that they brought against timber companies, all timber companies, loggers and tried to shut down logging tree cutting every which way they could. And, Um, you know, the small companies couldn't survive. And so now we've got the big companies, and that seems to happen with a lot of corporate, uh, you know, we got Walmart, okay. So um, anyways, and so, yeah, you're gonna talk about the, and so the forest got unhealthy, beetle infestation, because the loggers weren't out there, you know, in every place they coulda, shoulda been because of litigation. And so are you going to... Oh, and then uh, we were buying a lot of our wood from Canada. And so that's when I saw the prices of homes, building homes, go up. Um, So anyways, that's my comment. So um, will you be talking about the litigation that the tree huggers brought against logging and how that got shut down?
7: All right. Thanks, Marilyn. Well, the litigation uh, has not gone away. Um, They've changed their tactics. Um, I remember uh, I was involved actually um, with the telegraph timber sale over in the Locksaw that was tree spiked. I was working for Plunkrick at the time, uh, hanging from the Higgins Street Bridge. Um, Now they're lawyers. And um, the Equal Access to Justice Act um, is one of their cash cows. Uh, They'll deny it, but it actually is if they win on one of their points the government pays their, their attorney's fees. So that, uh, hasn't changed, unfortunately. So, um, and you know, the forest service, they put up what I would call a great project and they sue. And a lot of what they sue on today is endangered species act just because there's so much unknown, you know, they throw enough against the wall, see what sticks. Peter, your thoughts
1: Well, it's, uh, you know, good points made. Um, Like all of these types of things, it's, I hate to say this, but it's very complicated. Mm -hmm. So when you think about ecosystem management, uh, any of these mountain ranges, and the role of private industry and the role of federal government and all of that, um, all the parts that have an interest in how these lands work, uh, think of it as a big spider web. Okay. And so you have the corporate interests that, of course, their whole point is to make a profit uh, for their shareholders um, or the family mills. And I just mentioned, it's interesting that the family mills are probably the biggest part of the Montana wood products economy anymore because they, they have a commitment where they're willing to take lower profits during a period of time, whereas uh, shareholders, stock owner companies aren't. And so that's why we have Stoltz and Pyramid um, and uh, Sun Mountain. I mean, these are all family owned mills and they're committed to the community and they're, they're willing to take bigger losses. Uh, than corporate uh, stockholder-owned companies are. But when we talk about the environmental movement, there was a need for it. Um, I mean, I worked for Boise Cascade way back when in the 80s, and we marked a timber sale in an area, and I left some big old ponderosa pines, mainly because it was a great genetic resource for that site. And, uh, I got chewed out by my boss a month later when he was out there and he saw these big ponderosa pines still standing there. And he came to the office and said, who in the heck (laughs) marked those trees to leave? (laughs) And, you know, I, I spoke up and he said, we can't afford to leave trees like that. He said, the forest service has shut down their sales. We have five mills. We got to feed those mills. And each of those trees, uh, you know, is an, is bringing in a, a, a huge, is going to tip us over the profit margin that allows our mills to stay profitable, um, And so when the Forest Service changed its policy from being a consistent timber supplier to more a policy of not sure what their purpose was for a while, um, and now much more of an ecological restoration Restoration. type of uh, philosophy, it put the mills in a very difficult position because their own lands were not designed to support the mill. And so they then had to turn around and liquidate all of their timber stocks, uh, off of those lands. Uh, the flip side is that, you know, it would have been great to leave those big old ponderosa pine trees. And I, the argument I made when he said, is we can't afford to leave trees like that. I said, you can't afford not to leave trees like that. So, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's complicated. It is. Now, I don't agree with the radical, uh, environmental things. I don't agree with, uh, uh nuisance lawsuits. Um, you know, if I'm, I'm all for collaboration, and yep. so the collaborative efforts are a great move in the right direction. Uh, the problem is that the collaborative groups don't have decision-making power. They're only there to support uh, court decisions is, is the only power they have. And we need to give the collaboratives decision-making power. Right. That if a community gets together and says, hey, in our local landscape that we understand and we know, and we come up with this equitable solution of conserving the forest uh, values that we want while also – keeping an infrastructure in place that, that can make a living off this landscape, they should be given decision authority. You know, And so, I mean, I, I totally agree that the environmental movement was absolutely necessary and there were very good things that were done. But then again, we have those that it's their own business model. We're making money just by suing everything and anybody. And that that's not good. So anyways, uh, I'll, I'll leave it yeah. at that.
4: Yeah, we have another caller. Uh, Gary's on the line. Uh, Gary, what's your question or comment for Peter and Scott? Yes,
8: uh, I've noticed that driving on some of the local highways around Missoula, like especially down the Bitterroot and on Highway 200 headed up towards Lincoln, that many of the trees along the side of the road are turning brown. The branches are all turning brown on the roadside. And on the opposite side of the tree, they're still green. And I'm wondering, what is going on? I've never seen this before with the trees along highways.
1: Well, it's actually a pretty common phenomenon because what you're seeing is the effects of de-icer uh, spray on the, on the tree needles. Um, sometimes it stresses them enough to kill the trees or make them susceptible to a secondary bark beetle attack. Uh, but that de-icer also, it's, it's essentially salt. And it uh, robs the moisture out of the foliage on that side of the tree because uh, salt is is very hygroscopic. It pulls the moisture out of the needles, and that's what causes them to brown. So uh, that that's pretty much what you're seeing, and it, it's a fairly common phenomenon that you can observe. I've observed for it for decades in areas where deicer is used. A little bit, uh, probably about the five mile marker up the Blackfoot, there was a really bad outbreak of tussock moth
7: just right. a couple years ago. And tussock moth sort of runs its course And then drops out And if you look at those trees now They've pretty well greened up Now you so, farther up the Blackfoot uh, you know, Especially if you drive by Salmon Lake uh, Look across the lake You'll see a lot of brown and dead trees And that's the Douglas fir bark beetle That comes and goes Just like the mountain pine beetle The Douglas fir bark beetle Has a little bit shorter uh, lifespan But um, it loves those big fir, and that 's what you 're seeing a lot on the higher hills. go ahead, Gary
8: Oh yeah, uh, it seems like the phenomenon Phenom- Phenom- is is just uh, trees within a hundred yards of highways, and it 's only on the highway side of the tree. The <laughs> back side of the uh, uh, opposite side is still green, and the highway side is uh, brown. And I think it's it's, it's more Doug Fir than Ponderosa.
1: Yeah, every uh, every tree species has different susceptibilities to it. And it's usually just in the first 10 yards off the side of the tree. Uh, Sometimes you'll see it further. But uh, as Scott mentioned, there's a lot of other agents out there that kill trees. But usually bark beetles or tussock moth, they hit the entire, you'll see the whole crown turning color. Whereas the icer is just on the roadside.
8: Yep. Well, thank you.
1: Thanks. I was wondering
4: about that. Thanks, Gary. Uh, we're up against our next break. Let's take it a little bit early so we get plenty of time for Andy's call. Uh, he's been holding for a little while here. Uh, phone number is 721-1290 if you want to get in the queue as well. I know, Max, you were on hold for a while. If you call back, uh, we'll get you right on because um, we just saw you dropped off there. But uh, we're Our guests this morning are forestry specialist Peter Kolb, retired forester Scott Keen. And we still have about 40 minutes left in our show this morning. So, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back right after this quick break. All right. We are back on Talk Back. Nick Christensen here filling in for Peter Christian this week. He will be back on Monday. Our guests this morning on Talkback Back are forestry specialist Peter Kolb as well as retired forester Scott Keen. And the lines are starting to fill up a little bit, gentlemen. We, uh, I know Andy waited through the break. Uh and Andy, what's your question or comment for our guest this morning?
5: Uh, good morning, gentlemen. I've got one of each. Uh, my comment is there's a great book called Smokescreen by Chad T. Hampson that I'd recommend anybody read who's got uh, 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 concerns over logging practices, etc. cetera. Uh, Hampson was also involved in a study with a fellow by the last name of Della De Sala. So Hampson Della Sala, I think it was 2016 or 2018 they did a study kind of debunking a lot of the uh, modern forestry, forestry uh, uh, methodologies. Um, but my question is, uh, we know that the logging industry and the paper industry have uh, fought very hard to uh, keep hemp from being becoming legal William uh, Randolph Hirsch. Uh, famously was uh, uh caught bribing people to make marijuana illegal in the first place. But since that time, they, uh, the logging companies or the logging industry have uh, fought very hard to uh, keep hemp illegal because it's such a great replacement for a lot of our wood needs. So my question is, uh, now that it is it is legal here in Montana, are we seeing any hemp uh, uh, production of plywood, of paper, of this sort of thing that can replace some of our, our needs, uh, uh, take them away from the forest and put them in, in agricultural fields uh, where hemp is so easily grown.
1: Okay, so two two things. I'll address Thanks, the first, the first for, uh, um, regarding the paper, uh, and I, I wasn't aware it was a book, but I'm aware of the paper uh, from Hanson Della Sala. So their argument that they're making in the paper, and it's a very good one, I actually cite their work quite a bit, is that, Uh, In the last 10 years, or actually longer than that, thinning has become the predominant practice, especially on Forest Service land, because one, it doesn't change the visuals that much. Uh, It reduces the fuels and shows that it actually decreases fire behavior. Um, And so thinning is being used a lot. And uh, it's being touted as uh, analogous to the frequent burning that uh, indigenous people used to do. And they make they went through all the records um, uh, that were used to make the thinning argument uh, on national forest lands. And they correctly point out that actually much of that Forest Service land where thinning is the main application was actually a patchy stand-replacing fire regime, not a frequent fire that uh, somewhat thinned the forest. Um, now... Uh, Those authors are notorious for being anti-logging. They're huge pro-wilderness, anti-management advocates. And the reason, in my opinion at least, that they're making a big argument against thinning is because thinning has been accepted by a large um, number of public. And it's a huge practice that the Forest Service is employing. Uh, They don't clear cut. uh, They they do some harvesting, uh, for timber, but it's all, they're really big into ecological restoration. Uh, and thinning is one of the main tools that they have there. So this is an art, this is an article written in scientific journal for the purpose of counteracting the arguments of why thinning is a good thing for fire hazard reduction and restoration on the landscapes. Okay. Now I totally agree with them because instead of thinning a lot of these areas, we actually need to be doing Dare I say the word clear cut, we need to be doing patch cuts, okay? Irregular shape harvests that emulate what a fire would do. And those – and we need to re- restore the patchiness to our landscape because that patchy landscape is much more resilient to climate change. It's much more resilient to landscape fires, etc. And on top of that, it can be done profitably rather than spending billions in taxpayer dollars to subsidize a thinning that is barely merchantable for the sawmills to go and do unless it's subsidized. Uh, so there's there's that part of all of that. Um, uh, your your second question or your your real question is about using hemp as a replacement, and I will very strongly disagree with that. Hemp is a replacement for wood fiber. It's a replacement for wood fiber maybe in the paper industry, but not for structural. Uh, you can make structural uh, components out of compressing hemp just like you can out of sawdust, but it's enormously expensive to do, and. Uh, The other counterargument to that, and and I disagree that uh, the wood products industry is uh, pushing against hemp because they're threatened by it. Uh, It's just hemp is not economical to uh, turn into something uh, that has a structural component like wood does. You can't make plywood out of it, et cetera. Um, And on top of what, hemp is an intensive management agricultural practice. It means you need to add fertilizer. Uh, You might need to irrigate. Um, whereas a forest where you are emulating natural disturbance practices, whether it's a patch cut or thinning, etc., is keeping the ecological integrity in place in that forest. You're just preventing catastrophic events and you're actually promoting diversity of species, especially the sun-loving tree species like larch and ponderosa pine. So you can get your wood fiber and help maintain Uh, forest resilience uh, using harvesting whereas hemp production for timber and fiber production is intensive agriculture it's a high carbon based industry because you got to use a lot of fuel to farm it you need to use a lot of fossil fuels to process it so i don't think hemp is any risk or any threat whatsoever to the wood products industry because it makes absolutely no sense uh, to try and replace wood fiber with it so there there's my my opinion on it All right, let's uh, get to Jeff's call. He's next up.
4: And Jeff, what's your question or comment for our guest this morning? Well, first, a
9: comment before I get to my question. Um, I'm planning on seeing in about three weeks Dr. Kolb for your mini college and uh, really, really looking forward to it. And for any listeners out there who I fondly refer to as the other listener, um, there's no other place you can go and get – Entertained, educated, and fed for $40, and uh, it's, it's it's the best deal going. So Sounds I like a commercial. <laughs> well, I encourage everybody to go. I, I, I won't miss it. I just I put it on my calendar every year. Um, when I heard you were coming on, I started looking at the yak forest projects that are out there, and I came across two. There might be more. So this is kind of very preliminary research, but the Naughty Pine Project and the Black Ram Project, the, the knotty pine encoded uh, 56,000 acres roughly, and they were going to log about 3,000 and burn about 4,700, and that's about 5% and 8%. Um, and then the big ram was 95 acres total, and there was going to be about 3,000 uh, acres of logging, which is about 3%. And yet these got shut down by, um, even though they were supported by uh, the Kootenai Forest Stakeholders uh, Collaborative, which was a whole host of folks I won't go into, is over 70 state and local businesses. Uh, There's a few objectors, and I didn't catch the one you named. Uh, The Alliance for the Wild Rockies, Mike Garrity was one of the big ones, the Native Ecosystems Council, and the Yak Valley Forest Council. And I believe, as you said earlier, that they are all using the Equal Access to Justice Act to actually uh, get the government and ask taxpayers to fund their efforts to shut down any industry in these forests. And uh, there's a guy named George Werthner out there who talks about chainsaw me- medicine. He's a self-proclaimed ecologist, and he says that chainsaw medicine doesn't work on forests. It won't mitigate any of the, any of the uh, da- dangers uh, caused by just leaving them to grow, uh, as, you, as you've talked so often, Dr. Gold. And when I read Chainsaw Medicine, and then I look at those pictures that you post of areas side by side that one was uh, was managed and one was not, and the unmanaged area burned completely, and the managed area looks almost unscathed. And I, mm-hmm. can, can you talk to that Chainsaw Medicine thing and some of the other eight, uh, objectors that are using the Equal Access to Justice Act to uh, to? Basically, thwart the livelihoods of so many people up in northwestern Montana.
4: Yeah, Jeff, we're going to do that right after the break. Uh, thanks for your call. And uh, we also have Emmett on hold as well as Joe. Joe's been on, so we'll be doing first callers first. But yeah, uh, Dr. Cole will answer that question when we come back. Uh, if you want, also have a question, give us a call 721 1290. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll be back right after this quick timeout. Alright, we are back on TalkBack. Nick Christensen here filling in for Peter Christian. Uh, he's been off all week, but he will be back on Monday. We'll be back to regular programming then. Our guests this morning are forestry specialist, Dr. Peter Kolb, as well as retired forester Scott Keen. And, uh, Peter, I know that Jeff had a couple questions there before the break that you wanted to answer.
1: Right. Um, so a lot of those projects you mentioned up in the YAC, um, that were designed with the collaborative. So everybody at the table, uh, discussing how can we reduce a wildfire hazard, how can we restore some of these overly dense areas that are at high risk from stand-replacing fires, et cetera. Uh, but up in the Yak uh, in northwestern Montana, um, a lot of that impinges on grizzly bears that are still listed as endangered species up there. And so there's a lot of conflicting science out there about grizzly bears, um, um, Plum Creek did a lot of research and funded a lot of research on grizzly bear habitat. And they actually found that the grizzly bears prefer um, logged areas because when you open up the canopy, either through thinning or harvesting that creates gaps, you get a much higher uh, coverage of huckleberries and serviceberry, which are primary food sources for grizzly bears. Um, as well as a lot of the understory vegetation that they eat the roots. And, and uh, I mean in the spring, they'll eat grass and clover uh, as well. What grizzly bears don't do well with is supposedly they don't interact very well with people. And so road closures, etc. it's not logging that uh, bothers the grizzly bears. It's, it's uh, human activity, even though the collared grizzly bears uh, around uh, Columbia Falls are proving the opposite. I mean, if you look at the maps of the collared grizzly bears, I would not okay. walk around Columbia Falls at night because those things are everywhere in town. Same way yeah. with Sealy Lake. Yep. Yeah, yep. Sealy Lake. Um, I have a rancher friend out and near uh, Conrad. She's 50 miles from the front range, and she raises sheep and cows. And she is constantly chasing grizzly bears off uh, off of her ranch. Uh, in the town of Shoto, I have friends there that used to go out in the morning for, for walks. They can't anymore because in the early morning, uh, the streets are being patrolled by grizzly bears. And it's too dangerous for them to go for walks anymore. So, whole another issue. But uh, yeah, this is you know the, the people you mentioned are what we call serial litigants. Uh, they have very strong opinions, and they don't feel that logging uh, has any role in Western forests. They just as soon see Montana forests turned into national parks, essentially, where no management is allowed, and they're they're following this philosophy that nature will take care of itself. Well, yeah, but you look at the history of nature in Montana and it's fires, big fires. I mean, these are, we have had a lot of fires here in the last 20 years, but prior to 1940, we had a lot of big fires as well. As you look at the fire history, fires are the norm here. And of course, and back when indigenous people lived here, when there are big fires, they moved out of the area. We now have towns, communities, infrastructure. So learning to work with fire where fire is a tool, a useful tool, but, uh, Trying to say, we're gonna restore our ecosystems to let fire did what it did 200 years ago is completely unrealistic. Uh, and fires weren't a consistent thing. They, fires occur with weather patterns. So when we go in a hot, dry weather period, uh, we have a lot of big fires. When we go in a cool, wet weather period, we have fewer fires. Uh, if climate change is a, a real phenomenon and we're gonna con- get warmer all the time, We're gonna lose a lot of these forest ecosystems unless we do things to reduce fuels and break up the fuel continuity, which is creating that patchy landscape where we have patches of big old trees and patches of younger trees interspersed among them. And there is a difference between national parks and national forests. You know, national
7: forests were designed for use. Gifford Pinchot pulled them out of Department of Interior for that reason. They wanted to be able to use, you know, for use where national parks basically are hands-off management, let nature do a thing. And I think that's a lot of times what these people want is they want, you know, nature to take its place. That's not what Forest Service lands are for. That's what national parks are for.
1: So. And if we use wilderness areas as our control, um, about half of wilderness areas have burned in the last 20 yep. years. And they have burned very severely where the, you have a, a landscape that's been converted from forest to a brush field. Uh, that's very poor in trees or been converted entirely entirely to lodgepole pine, uh, which is the simplest of forest ecosystems and lacks the biodiversity that was there before. So, again, we need to look at all the science, not just select papers of what needs to be there. And we need wilderness areas. We need national parks. But we also need to manage our landscapes in a way that works for everybody. But, okay, so you have more questions.
4: Yeah, uh, Max is back. Max was uh, the caller that was on hold for so long that we lost. So I want to get to his call right away. Uh, Max, what's your uh, question or comment for uh, Peter and Scott?
0: Peter and Scott, I worked at Plum Creek in Pablo a long time ago, before Pablo shut down. I seen the writing on the wall coming about 10 years before it shut down. The thing of it is, is that Plum Creek could have been sold to another plant. But Plum Creek itself decided not to have the phone answered to the people that wanted to buy it. That is one issue that hurt the community up there. The other thing is that hurt the community is when Stone Container got pushed out of uh, of, uh, Missoula, Montana, basically, because of all the uh, environmentalists that are down here and stuff, and that hurt about 12 million dollars so now they're trying to survive on the college and hamburger stands back in 1910 they had the great fire and the elders my dad used to work for the bison range so i know all about government and a lot of issues there but anyway to go to it is there's a sheep drive trail that went from perma all the way into Bois, idaho And they used that trail. And also, uh, Perma was a remount station for mules and horses for the Forest Service and stuff like that. But they used to have the CC programs and stuff that would go in and thin. And they also used the mountains for grazing of cattle. And they had less fire hazards and less brush. Nowadays, you go up there and all it is is a stack of brush. It's a a firebox. So, my thing is... How come the environmentalists don't have to put up a bond if they're stopping a logging operation that was approved by the Forest Service and everybody else? Because when the logger goes out there to do the logging, he has to bond the job. So in retrospect, the environmental groups should have to bond the job if they stop it. And then that way they have to have some risk at it too for stopping it. But... My thing is, is we got to do some grazing. We got to do some things differently. We got to use common sense. So education in the colleges and the high schools need to be brought in and worked on. That is the problem with uh, a lot of things. In like you drop out history, Uh, kids are not being taught history. So we're having our woke problems and stuff like that. That is my feelings and stuff like that. But anyway. What I'm saying is agriculture needs to play a role in forest service and forestry, and hand in hand, hand in hand, they can accomplish a lot. Now, this is another thing that I heard from some loggers that were the fire up at Libby a few years ago. They were within about a quarter of a mile of that. They could have put that fire out, but the forest service regional manager up there said no. You guys can't do it. they got the equipment up there. They could have put it out. Instead, they burned up 600 and some thousand acres. Congratulations to the Forest Service. So the Forest Service needs to come back with common sense employees, not environmental employees, but common sense. That is my thing. So, you know, I don't know what to say.
4: Hey, hey Max, we, we really appreciate your call. We're, we are up against a break here, so... I'm going to give uh, I'm going to give Peter and Scott plenty of time to answer and respond to what you said here. Uh, we also saw Emmett on hold and Joe on hold. We will try to get to your calls as soon as we can. Uh, if you'd like to get in the queue, phone number is 721-1290. We'd love to hear from you as well. We'll be back right after this quick timeout. All right. We are back on talk back. Uh, Nick Christianson here filling in for Peter. Max just gave us a call. Uh, left us a lot to talk about
7: and uh uh, I know, Scott, that you uh, wanted to address some of the things that he brought up. Well, one of the things is the bonding. When we bought a timber sale with the State of the Forest Service, the purchaser has to put up a bond um, and cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars um, in bonding fees. And if you sue, um, yeah, basically uh, it's a, you know, a stamp. So I agree, there should be skin in the game, uh, whether they should bond just like uh, buying timber sale. If they're gonna appeal it, you bet, same bonding requirement uh, as the purchaser would have. So I agree. Yeah,
1: yeah. and to you know, some of the other uh, points about the Pablo mill and Smurfit stone, you know, one of the frustrating things is sometimes uh, corporate structure uh, isn't our friend as well. Uh, The Pablo mill was a profitable mill, Ponderosa pine sawmill that was being referred Mm -hmm. there. Um, and, uh, there is just a corporate decision not to keep that open. Uh, they're looking at markets and, and, uh, supplies and things like that. And Smurfit stone as well. Uh, when that was sold, it had the specific caveat that you cannot open it as a paper mill anymore, which hurt Montana. And it was stupid. Uh, Smurfit stone was a profitable mill. It was one of the only mills that took a uh, paper pulp in Montana. Um, but this is a corporate decision to try and corner the market and, you know, so corporations, big corporations are sometimes a big part of the problem. Um, and, you know, we can segue that over to federal government management. So the federal government manage on on broad policies and broad uh, rules and standards because they're deathly afraid of one individual doing something bad and they get a black eye about it. So it's frustrating. And that's why I'll go back to the common theme is they kind of come up with a solution. We have local collaboratives where the federal government is working with local stakeholders to come up with common sense solutions. But again, they don't have the power of making decisions. Uh, and so we, if, if I could change one thing, you know, as I was saying, if you were king for one day, is I would give those collaboratives the power to make binding decisions regarding landscape management. So Scott, I know you wanted to talk about, uh, Max kind of brought it up, educating our-
7: Educating, yeah. yeah. One of the things, the Montana Logging Association been around since the mid seventies, they do a fantastic, um, um, they, they work with the FFA, Future Farmers of America, and getting them, um, you know, into the trades, just like Missoula has, Missoula under construction, Bozeman has digger days. Um, there's nothing wrong with, with getting your hands dirty with operating equipment. And the, you know, we're trying to get those younger generations. FFA does a great job, has forestry programs. Um, and just dispelling that myth that, you know, you got to have a, you know, four-year degree. A four-year degree, you're coming out with $100,000 in debt. A lot of these guys coming out of the Missoula College, um, they're making 40 $50 an hour full benefits and barely any debt so yeah we got to change that mindset that you know getting your hands dirty you know isn't a bad thing all right
4: let's uh let's get to emmett's call uh emmett you've been waiting the longest what's your question or comment for talk back
2: oh thanks for taking my call well i think about education the caller was talking about history and knowing our history so as not to be involved in woke political correctness and shutting down the logging i think that's what he was talking about but my question is this, kind of dovetailing on Maryland thing, and we've kind of dovetailed about, about this, about the radical environmentalists and that kind of thing, and even, you know, suing over endangered species. I'm trying to ask this question of environmentalists on this show. They always stuck it. But it seems to me the radical environmental movement, environmentalists, is a religion. To me, it feels almost more like a Wiccan part of religion or like New Age, where they're worshipping endangered species as a god, worshipping the please, trees, not please, trees as a god, worshipping the mountains, the grass, the insects, the okay. carnivores, singing and dancing and worshipping them as, as gods, and we are an infestation on Mother Earth. Is there any part of this, is any a part of this involved this uh, environmental religion with the occult or new age do you have any information on this or not because often these theologies go to uh, religious theology or some idea why are they so driven i don't think it's just profit that the enviros are driven it's got to be something else that they really is at the core of their beliefs and i'm wondering if it's part of it some sort of occultic new age or wiccan or something could you address this or is that beyond your expertise or do you have any opinions on this
4: i yeah, mean we're up against a break so we're going to take our last one minute time out and then we'll let our guests address that um we also have a couple other callers still calling in and yeah we only have about eight minutes or so left in the program so we'll try to cover as much as we can when we come back
3: For over a century, AM radio has evolved to meet the needs of our community. More than 80 million listeners depend on AM radio each month. It's also the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping us safe in dangerous times. A new bill in Congress would ensure this free, reliable service remains in cars. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress to support the AM radio for every vehicle act. Message
4: and data rates may apply. You may receive up to four messages a month and you may text stop to stop.
3: This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters.
4: All right, we are back on TalkBack. Nick in here filling in for Peter this week. Uh, our guests in the studio this morning, forestry specialist Dr. Peter Kolb, as well as retired forester Scott Keenan. Uh, gentleman Emmett uh, had an interesting question for you, and Peter, I think you wanted to address it.
1: Yeah, well, two things. One is uh, you refer to these folks as environmentalists. I'm an environmentalist, okay? Uh, they are people that have strong opinions, and they are uh, anti-forest harvesting. So regarding their motives and religion and all of that type of thing, uh, a quick answer to that is if we have any information on that, the answer is no. And I don't think there really is. I, I'd be very cautious about going down that road. Uh, they have strong opinions and we welcome, We everybody should be in this game. And those people who think that harvesting is a bad thing, uh, they have to have a voice because they help us improve the way we do things, but they shouldn't have monopolies or dictatorial voices. All right, let's let's uh, let's get
4: Larry on. He hasn't called yet. Uh, Larry, what's your question or comment for our guest this morning?
10: Uh, yes, I think uh, Blackfoot Challenge is a good example of the uh, collaborative effort that uh, brought in a lot of different points of view and worked quite well. And uh, I just wondered if uh, either Scott or Dr. Colb could comment about the Uh, latest bill, uh, Senator Tester's bill, I think uh, Senator Dane's uh, main objection to that bill is some of the areas that were supposed to be studied as wilderness, uh, Congress never took action on those, and he wants to see those uh, put back into multiple-use management And I think uh, that was one of his strong objections to Senator Tester's bill of creating more wilderness up there in the scapegoat. wondered if you could comment on that, and I'll listen out there.
4: Thanks, Larry.
1: Well, as as a general rule, I try to stay out of the political posturing that's going on out there. Um, I have not agreed with uh, uh, several of uh, Senator Tester's bills uh, regarding wilderness, and um, I think, again, uh, determinations about new wilderness areas need to be determined by local collaboratives. They are the people that are directly impacted by what's happening there. Um, and I think they should have a, a larger decision-making uh, power in whether a specific landscape in a specific county gets turned into wilderness or not.
4: We only have about four minutes left in our program. So, Joe, I know you've been on hold for a while, but we did already get a call from you. And Peter really wanted to cover some important things before the end of the show. So go ahead, Peter.
1: Well, the questions came up early about uh, what are the impacts of corporate forest land turning into private land? Um, And, you know, of course... There's a long story and it's very complicated in that, but um, a lot of the former champion land was either acquired by the Forest Service. uh, So, and that has turned private land into a minority in the Swan Valley, which has caused prices to go crazy. Uh, As I mentioned, Forest Service owns 67% of forested land in Montana. So there's a question of whether there needs to be more under Forest Service rule. I work a lot with private forest landowners. And one of our goals is, of course, uh, to reduce hazards like fire, to make those people that are living in the wildland-urban interface, and my wife and I are are one of those, uh, so that they aren't a liability to firefighting, fire suppression, and all of that. Uh, But the other thing is this private land is productive forest land, um, and we need to keep it productive forest land, just like agricultural land. So timber is a vital resource, and whether it's private, family-owned, or private corporate owned doesn't make a difference, though families tend to be a little bit more uh, ecologically minded. Uh, they like the aesthetics, they like the wildlife. So there is the potential that a lot of this former Plum Creek land that has turned into private land will actually be managed uh, more thoughtfully. Uh, so go ahead, Scott. Well, when
7: Plum Creek sold their land, they sold it to warehouse in a merger, and then few years later, Weyerhaeuser decided to sell off the land. A lot of that land was bought by the Nature Conservancy. Um, and Nature Conservancy is, uh, um, they took that land and actually have managed it. They actually, you know, Nature Conservancy actually has a harvesting program, but a lot of those lands were traded or sold or transferred to the Forest Service. And again, you know, the, to me, the Forest Service doesn't need any more lands. But a lot of them did go to the small private. Uh, a lot of the ranches uh, east of Missoula that had, you know, maybe a section or two of Plum Creek, you know, they bought that land and now they're grazing and, and raising cattle on it. So, um, yeah, the Nature Conservancy is um, actually a really good program. It could have gone. I mean, you go back east, um, you know, everything is under hunting camps. Uh, you have to pay to play. Uh, The one thing here in Western Montana, um, Plum Creek, Champion, all had the open lands policy. Now, the gates are a different story, um, but you could hunt, fish, do every, you know, firewood on, you know, Plum Creek lands. Now, someone brought up gates. Um, Yes, we put in a lot of gates at Plum Creek, but I also took dozens and dozens of loads to the dump of illegal dumping uh, when people would go up there during the spring and gumbo mud and just make needy bruts in the road that we would have to fix. That's why we did a lot of gates um, and for wildlife to basically um, give them a little bit of break. You bet they're open lands. You can walk in or you can horseback ride. So one of the other things we want to talk about is that just that transition from the old school D6 logging to the mechanical logging. Uh, the mills did the same thing. Um, part of my, you know, I'm in charge of the forestry area over there at the museum, and we have one of the few remaining steam powered sawmills. And we give just, you know, um, demonstrations. But it has a quarter inch kerf, quarter inch wide blade, which makes a tremendous amount of sawdust. Today's mills are so computerized. They scan the log, basically a compute, like computer decides um, to, what to make out of it. And it's just the technology is just uh, ramped up. So, you know.
4: Gentlemen, we are completely out of time this morning. I want to thank both of you for being here. Uh, I want to thank all of our guests this week and especially all of our callers that called in while uh, Peter was gone. You guys made my life easy. We'll be back on Monday with the KGVO Book Club with uh, Mirdad and Michael, they'll be on from eight thirty to ten. Uh, Peter and I will kick around some open phones from eight to eight thirty and enjoy the weekend. Uh, looks pretty good out there this morning and. Uh,